The Parenting Unpacked podcast is recorded on Yagara and Yagambe Banjalung land. We acknowledge the Turrbal, Yagara and Kumbamari people as its traditional custodians. We acknowledge all First Peoples of this land and celebrate their enduring connections to country, knowledge and stories. We pay our respects to the Elders, those who have passed into the dreaming, those here today and those of tomorrow. Hello and welcome back to Parenting Unpacked. I'm Dr. Siobhan Kennedy-Costantini and this is Dr. Kristen Summer. Kristen is back. Hello, I'm alive. <laughs> While it's only been one week for you guys where Siobhan flew solo, it's been about four in uh, mm. actual podcast recording world. We had recorded in advance, which I'm very grateful for now. Now we are just running by the skin of our teeth because I died for a long time. <laughs> yes, COVID, pregnancy, <laughs> COVID and pregnancy. rough the whole nine yards like you know I got COVID from my toddler and she came home one day with a fever from kindy I had to pick her up halfway through the day you know I remember that day that's Mm -hmm. when that's when it all went down that's when everything went to shit (laughs) Mm. so I picked her up she had a fever I looked after her you know we share everything so she had a fever for a day and then she was fine me however deathbed for like three weeks couldn't get out of bed like this is the third week and no fourth week I'm really still like feeling the effects so I got hit with first trimester nausea at the same time as the COVID and none of it was a fun time so yeah no and in the height of Australian summer gross yeah yeah it was none of it it none of it was okay but but my husband wasn't traveling my husband was home So I didn't what have would to you parent. Have done? I don't know. He's about to go away for the rest of this week and then all of next week. So I will let you know yes. if I fall down again. Um, it's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> I would have I would have made my mum move in or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, that's exactly, you, you would have figured something out because that's how. And Ryan's family lives nearby, don't they? Yes, they do. Everybody lives nearby. Yeah. Someone would have come and looked Someone. after my child. But a, a known adult would have moved in and done something. Hopefully. Hopefully someone would have helped. The, the, the silver lining for me, I'm not sure about my husband, but for me, the silver lining of all of this is that my daughter has had a parental preference for me for mm. bedtime and waking up in the middle of the night and waking up in the morning and having the most insane tantrums if I don't mm. if I don't greet her at any of those points in time she doesn't do that anymore sometimes mm. yeah. she just instantly calls out daddy in the middle of the night instead of mommy and that's just like three yeah. years of my life where I've just never that's it blows my mind and she's yeah. done it without tantrums and I think it's because she's so keen for this baby in my belly and like my husband is always like mommy's feeling really unwell the things that are helping her grow her baby and grow, grow our baby in her belly are making it really hard for her to feel good um mm. let's leave her to sleep like I've been feeling like you told me I was like I didn't mm. believe you when you were like I have to go I, to bed before Timo every night I didn't yeah. believe you I believe yeah. you now yeah I we had exactly because you're you're um like two three months um less pregnant than me we're both the same amount of pregnant because pregnancy okay. is a is a, um, a, a binary <laughs> it's a but, not, not a quantity it is not uh, uh, but of. as in yeah so 
But this yeah. this was us exactly like um I same thing. Timo would never call out for Alex, and if Alex would go in, he depending. Hopefully, he was tired enough that he didn't really know what was going on. But mm. it almost always ended in disaster. So we just mm. never did it because it didn't work. It's too much work. Um, whereas I think they pick up on the fact that it's just not an option. Like mm. it's not available. Whereas when we say I'm not available, they're like, bullshit, you are available. I, can see I will scream and you will come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas it's very much like on on the deathbed, like feeling so ill. And I think as well, they are very attuned and Timo was as well as Sienna was, mm. it sounds like. But he mm-hmm. knew that I wasn't well and he was very worried for me. So mm. we had to do all of the, exactly like Ryan did, all of the explaining of, and then he'd be like, I don't like the baby. It's making mummy sick. And you're like, no, 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 it's not, it's not what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> so we use child-friendly language to say that mummy's body is protecting the baby, but some things that help protect the baby make mummy feel a bit sick yeah um, that's and- I've been very like aware of that terminology because mm. I already don't want to have like sibling rivalry like yeah or, or, or like sibling resentment emerge yeah. like you're taking my mummy away from me it's all your fault no it's mummy's body creates hormones that support the baby in growing but those hormones sometimes make mum feel like crap um mm-hmm. and then you brought home COVID so yeah so you really only have yourself <laughs> to blame <laughs> oh but speaking oh. of um the switch in so last night oh, Timo called so he always called that for me in the night mm. um which is fine <clears throat> um but this morning the first person he called out for was Alex and I just heard daddy 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 and I went oh. I matched my husband's wake and I went you're on and he went but mm-hmm. I was on yesterday morning I said yep (laughs) and it was the best because he's been doing five o'clock wake-ups because the birds have been extra loud um Mm. for those who are non-australian we have our birds are uh they're dinosaurs they're not birds they (laughs) the the tweet tweets that you hear in the the cinderella movies is not our birds Mm -hmm. they're they're big and they're angry and excited (laughs) about the new dawn and they're loud um and so yes they start the day early and help Mm. the rest of us unfortunately start the day early and yeah but I got to sleep in although the problem is Mm. as you would know with a toddler awake playing you don't you doze best case Mm. scenario you doze Mm. um but at least I got to cuddle my pillow so that felt nice for for another hour (laughs) there wasn't someone kicking me in the back for a few minutes correct (laughs) I mean although um how far along are you now 26 weeks you've got someone kicking you in the back from the inside don't you non-stop <laughs> I, you, know, you know how I um was putting out into the universe that this was a potato baby <laughs> it's not a potato I knew it was never going to be I knew it was wishful thinking mm-hmm. I wanted a chiller a relaxed mm-hmm. baby who was calm and happy um, that would like sleep babies like like in the movies where they just yeah. sit in their pram and don't do anything for hours oh. at a time oh um yeah, so I don't have one of those. This baby yeah. is kicking. So I was, to- I think I was, was I talking to you? I think I was talking to you yesterday on the mm-hmm. phone about, I don't know yeah. whether it, I have the impression that this baby is a bit less active than Timo was, but I mm. don't know whether that's just because I'm used to the intensity that Timo was. And even if mm. it's exactly the same, I'm like, oh, well, that, like with Timo, that was my first experience of it. Whereas yeah. this, I have already experienced it. So it's less intense. Um, mm. but it's just me like there's no doubt that there's a baby in there every all day every day I was trying to explain it to my husband I'm like so you know when you have really terrible diarrhea and the, in, your insides are just alive 
mm. because there's just constant move. I'm like, it's that all day, every day. But it's so um, much more than that. It's not. Oh, it, no, so it's like the, that's the closest I can. It's where it's like your insides are just writhing. Mm. It is. There are snakes mm. in your belly. Like, you know, in those yeah. like those horrifying like movies mm. where like there's snakes inside you. Anyways, that's really mortifying. Um, I don't know how we got <laughs> that's true. there. Timo felt, Timo felt the baby kick for the first time a couple of days ago. Aww. And he was so excited. He he took his hand off my belly with this huge smile on his face going, the baby kicked the muscles in my hand because he's all about muscles because he's a strong boy. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so much cute. I it's oh we're going through some some I once actually mm. yeah like some really intense emotions. He's feeling yeah. lots of rage at the moment, yeah. um, but he's also like on the flip side the most adorable adorable he's ever been. Same. Like, oh, we're here. Like, Quite a few times, oh, this morning he screamed in my face because I I did something he didn't like, which is unfortunately our new thing this week. Um, Doing things he doesn't like. (laughs) Oh, no, him screaming, like literally just screaming in my face. Yes, Um, obviously. And like not just like before it was he would yell in frustration and now it's like I'm angry at you, so you're getting screamed at. Um, So that's fun. And, And then he did the most weak, he tried to hit me, but he knows that he's not supposed to. Mm. So it's this really, this really weak, pathetic slap on my yeah. shoulder. Um, and I looked at him and he, then he looked really sheepish. <laughs> I was like, oh, buddy, that was pathetic. Well, okay. So we might differ here because when my daughter does that, when Sienna does it, I congr- I, I thank her. I'm like, thank you so much for like controlling your body enough not to hurt mm. me. I know you were frustrated. That's a good idea. Like, I don't know why, but like she used no, to hit that's... me really hard. And now I'm like, mm. you're doing such a good job because you know not to hit me hard. So you've hit me really gently. And I really appreciate that. No, that's oh. good. I, so to be clear, I didn't, that was all internal monologue. I didn't yeah, say that absolutely. was a pathetic hit because it, I mean, it was pathetic. I mean, sure. Yeah. I think I said something like, oh, you know, you are not allowed to do that. That was not very nice. Um, and mm. then he just looked really sheepish. Um, which I figured I'm like, oh, good, we're getting somewhere. Um, but then simu- simultaneously he will say he's being just so adorable. Like he'll mm-hmm. hold my face in his hand and say, I love you, mommy. Thank mm-hmm. you for taking care of me. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to melt. I think the correct euphemism for three is that it's aggressively adorable. Yeah. Yeah. Three is um, it's aggressively adorable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we have moments like as parents, like Ryan and I have moments where like she will just do or say something adorable and we'll look at each other from across the room and like smile, like, mm-hmm. and she's officially learnt that if she is sick, she stays home from kindy. So she mm-hmm. is now playing the, I'm sick. Mm-hmm. I can't go to kindy and this morning. I don't know how to handle this. I really don't. This morning, like she was telling me that she had stabbing pains in her stomach and I was like, oh, okay, how can I help you? And she's like, I have to stay home from kindy. And I was like, okay, <laughs> um, you're not feeling well enough to go to kindy. And she's like, no. And I was like, would you feel well enough to go to SeaWorld? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> okay, cool, if cool, cool. If you're, either. <laughs> yeah, if you're well enough to go to SeaWorld, you're probably well enough to go to kindy. But I don't know how to like navigate so that without no. like invalidating her internal experience. And like, how do uh-huh. I, I want to know, I want her to know that I believe her, but also, yeah. 
but also, I also know you're lying. <laughs> How do so I? We're having the same. We're having it with Timo at um at bedtime. Even though he's exhausted, he'll say, uh, "We can't go to bed because I I'm going to have nightmares." And it's like, buddy, again, we, like we sleep is gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> and we 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 handle it like we just like that's okay. We don't have to go to sleep. We just have to lie in bed. We can read mm-hmm. stories. We can sing songs. Mm. Um, and then like, it's always fine, but same thing. And like, oh, my tummy's sore. I think I need ice cream. And it's mm. like, no, that's not gonna, we're not gonna do that. It's not gonna help. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, definitely not. It's like you've picked the wrong, the wrong, um, connector there. But... Yeah. If you have a sore throat, maybe ice cream will work. Let's, let's retrain you and get you to lie <laughs> properly. Come on. Exactly. Please lie efficiently, mate. Uh, what do you, what, we can't expect that much more from three-year-olds, but on the topic no, of sleep, no. like, mm. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but I don't know if this is like bad or not. <laughs> I'm just going to preface that. What are you, what are you coming out with? <laughs> well, we figured out that if we read her a really boring novel to her, oh, yes. instead of reading a yes. book, which she loves yes. and she'll stay awake for, I'm reading her Harry Potter off the Kindle. <laughs> amazing I see this is what remember how this is what I was doing a few months ago I was reading yeah, my your book, book. that's he... why I was like oh I'll do that because my yeah, books are yeah. spicy and not for t- children's ears no. so I downloaded Harry Potter because it's in like the prime it was free but anyways like I was so I started reading it to her and she hates it she, <laughs> she's just but the thing is it works so well she will be awake yep. for ages and then we will like corral her into going no it is harry potter time and within two Mm. minutes of starting harry potter like i may as well go to sleep i just am i boring my child to sleep is that okay i just don't of course it's okay of course it's okay is she asleep (laughs) easy good fix you found a hack where we've switched he doesn't we read a few books now um Mm. but we're now back to singing to sleep which we used to do but he's he's mixed it up and it's actually worked out really perfectly because he wants me to sing I think I think one day I was telling him about the songs I used to sing to him when he was a baby and that I would Mm. I will sing those songs this baby and so then we started talking about the songs and then he started singing the songs to the baby and it's actually I'm I'm loving it oh that's disgustingly adorable I know isn't it and then even let's I'll I can add some layers to this so the song that I sing him is a song that my mum sang to me that her dad sang to her so it's like but what song is it um it's like a love song from the 40s oh cute it's not even like a lullaby no (laughs) not really um but it's just it's just really beautiful and um but the the benefit is that the baby has developed enough that it can hear everything I'm Mm, singing yeah so it's like I'm hoping that this is training the baby to fall asleep this well, no, well I mean I don't know if it'll fall, fall asleep but there is research that the nursery yeah. you sing while they're in utero is the one that calms mm. them when they're out so exactly um exactly. I do need to convince Sienna to do that when do they start hearing again is it like 24 weeks it's between 16 and 20 oh wow I'm way off like you're not too far off <laughs> just like 24 weeks and, sounds but sounds also, viable yeah Sure. Um, but so no, so that's been working really well at the moment, but similar to he, Timo has now associated that that song equals sleep time. So I started singing the song and his eyes start fluttering. Um, so 
it's it's just all a bit how's that for a sleep association and people telling us but people are probably telling us or like the sleep trainers are probably like that is a negative sleep association they should have put themselves to sleep no three-year-old puts themselves to sleep even one that was sleep trained they none of them do it they all like to be i i I like to be to go to bed with someone why why wouldn't my child like if it doesn't work for you cool but like it's it's not that bad in the grand scheme of things it's just that sometimes she goes most of the time she goes to bed at like 8 30 and I'm when I'm even when I'm not pregnant I'm tired we are tired mm. Like, mm. but anyways on the or topic recovering of from sleep, COVID. exactly topic of on sleep. The, how what a beautiful transition that we, oh, we plan because we plan nothing but on the topic yeah. of sleep um by the time you guys listen to this episode it will be the 7th of March so exactly a week from the day we record it because again we are behind on our recording schedule and flying by the skin of our teeth it's probably not the right analogy but anyways um and starting on the 6th of March is safe sleep week um which if you are a veteran listener of this podcast you've probably seen all the content we've provided and you're probably a fairly educated parent um, around how to sleep your infant safely. But mm-hmm. many, many people have no idea about this. So it's kind of like a public health and safety kind of initiative that the Red Nose Foundation champions here in Australia. Um, and they are running a huge amount of informational sessions, these webinars, these drop-ins, all sorts of crazy stuff that's amazing. Um, and we had the privilege of talking to Beck, who I forget what her job description is. Do you remember? I don't remember the title. Thankfully, she says yes. it in the episode. But basically, yes. my takeaway was that she is kind of the face of um, translating of, evidence. Yeah, the head of education or something. She's amazing. She um, mm. is a pediatric nurse. She has a doctorate. She did her doctorate research in um, things that help bereaved parents navigate loss um, because Red Nose Foundation is um, is all about working towards reducing the risk of SUDI, which is sudden unexpected death of an infant, of which SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, is uh, part of the umbrella term. Um, so she is a phenomenal person and we kind of just drilled her um, about safe sleep questions and we weren't mm-hmm. necessarily gentle and we didn't necessarily run no, the, she handled the, it like questions we sent <laughs> no that she provided no we sent we asked her lots of curly questions including yeah. questions that we know for a fact um things like um yeah anyway I don't I don't want to spoil the surprise but things about um things that we have done as parents that mm-hmm. we know for a fact were not safe sleep practices and yeah. what she had to say about these kinds of things um and she just came at it which is what Red Nose is all about. She came at it from mm. a really empathetic standpoint, acknowledging yeah. that best practice isn't practical practice per se, mm-hmm. and that parents are doing the best they can with the information they have, um, and really hammered home the idea that the Red Nose Foundation is all about um, getting the information out there. It's not about trying to police parents or whack anyone over the knuckles um, with a ruler. It's just about making mm-hmm. sure that parents have the information about how to sleep um safely with their infants and how to minimize risk and harm reduction all those kinds of really important things absolutely so I think without further ado we should probably slide on into the episode um Mm -hmm. because you've probably heard enough of us yammering and we've got a solid like 
I don't even know how long, at least an hour with Beck talking all about safe infant sleep. Um, and some of the things to convince you to keep listening, are we talked about co-sleeping, elevated cots for GERD, the outlet, um, mm. amongst many others, like swaddling. Weighted, and, weighted sleep sacks. Yeah, we talked about very all, all the controversial things, none of which were on her question list. So she did really well no. on the fly. <laughs> fly through those um without any preparation so that's how you, that's how you know someone is very educated in an area when they just like don't even blink when you send them those unexpected complicated questions we really appreciate her time and patience with us so yes. we're gonna flick you on over to the interview now and we'll talk to you after it's over hey Beck, welcome to parenting unpacked can you tell us a little bit about who you are who you work for and what you do Fantastic. So thank you so much for having me. My name is Dr. Beck Thornton and I am the National Manager for Health Promotion at Red Nose. So my role is really overseeing the education team and making sure that all of the information that we provide to parents and families and lots of other groups is evidence-based. So Red Nose um, is a not-for-profit and our vision is a future where no child dies suddenly and unexpectedly, whether that's during pregnancy, infancy or early childhood. So many people are familiar with Red Nose Day, that's us, um, and our purpose is really to save the lives of babies and children and support anyone impacted by the death of a ch- uh, baby or a young child. Amazing. And I think that's such a worthy cause. And it's always like the resource I turn to when I'm talking about safe sleep on social Mm -hmm. media. I think Siobhan is the same. We have international followers, so they're a bit confused when we direct to Red Nose um, because they're like, oh, it's just an Australian charity. They're not like a um, governing evidence body. Like, why would we trust them? Um, But to Australians, that is really the red nose That's exactly is what you are body. yeah yes yeah. and we do evidence-based it is it is and we do work really closely with international um groups as well so for example um the lullaby trust in the uk um we, we work really collaboratively with um groups like that the american academy of pediatrics um Amazing. so our recommendations actually mesh really nicely with theirs as well Oh, that's really nice. I did not know that. So the next time I get some like snide comments on TikTok talking about safe sleep and they're like, no, red nose is irrelevant. I can be like, they work with the AAP. So <laughs> um, just so you know, go away to your corner. Because <laughs> sometimes I think that the AAP is too dense and red nose has this really friendly, like, mm. um, like person centered, like mm. information. It's not like really long like bodies of text it's like here's how to keep your baby safe like and that is it and it's so much easier to like digest and it's not quite as controversial um random side note because like we're all uh scientists here um but what's your doctorate in (laughs) um so my background is as a pediatric nurse um so i started as a peds nurse about 20 or 20 something years ago now um and then I started teaching nursing um so I've been sort of in academia for the last 10 years or so um and started looking at um bereavement parental bereavement um so my PhD was in parents experiences of memory making um when their baby had passed away in an acute care setting um so really looking at how can we help parents who have experienced that kind of loss um, and what can we actually do that is helpful um, at 
the worst possible moment um, that, that it, I think so That is so beautiful. That is just so Because I know that the hospital that I birthed at had a lot of, presumably informed by your research and others, had a lot of um, the things that they did, like specific rituals around the loss of a baby when that happened. Thankfully, it doesn't happen too often um, at this hospital. They have a really great... Um, Mortality, that sounds bad. Anyway, let's ignore that. <laughs> low have, mortality yeah, rate. Yeah, yeah, they, the low yeah. mortality rate, not but great. You, that's low. That's the right word, low. Um, but I, I, I was aware of um, some really beautiful rituals that they had both in terms Ooh. of the community of doctors and nurses to help support the families. So um, no doubt you were involved in a lot of that research. Mm. So it's, Yeah, and it's really so rewarding now to be working in this mm. setting and be able to see some of that stuff coming out into yeah. the clinical space. And to like yeah. be able to apply it. And I think that's really interesting. It's not quite what we're talking about today. So we might circle back around to it at the end because I have such a curiosity about what the research says. And I'm sure even that kind of information mm. would help our parents that are listening to this because there are being on social media for as long as we have been, like I get messages from parents all the time who are bereaved, who have lost children mm. to Sudi um, or any kind of other tragic event so that kind of information would be valuable so we'll circle back to that but today we're talking about safe sleep which is uh one of red nose's you know huge missions uh, because it's safe sleep week this week it is so um safe sleep week is essentially our celebration of safe sleep um so it's a week full of events um that are free so we've got parent events um and, and we can talk about um, how people can sign up for those. Um, we've also got events for health professionals, early childhood educators, um, lots of different groups. So it's a really awesome opportunity just to get the word out and make sure that people know how to sleep their babies safely. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And should we run through as our first call of business, first whatever, our first order of business to be walked through how to sleep our babies safely? Absolutely. Um, so I think it's really important to start with a clear understanding of what it is that we're trying to prevent. Um, mm -hmm. So safe sleep is all about minimising the risk of sudden unexpected death in infancy or SUDI. Um, people are frequently familiar with the term SIDS, um, which is sudden infant death syndrome, and SIDS is one type of SUDI. Um, so SUDI is sort of an umbrella term that captures SIDS. Um, and also captures fatal sleep accidents. So um, fatal sleep accidents are where we know what happened. So, um, you know, there's an investigation at the scene, there's an autopsy, and we know what it was that led to that baby's death. Um, so those are termed fatal sleep accidents. And then there's some babies where even with all of those investigations, we're not sure what happened. Um, and those are termed SIDS or sudden um, infant death syndrome. So what we know is that there are some things that make babies more at risk. Um, so in particular, age. Um, so we know that the majority of SIDS deaths occur in the first six months of life. Mm. Um, so we call that sort of the critical developmental period. And that really has to do with the hardwiring of the brainstem and how babies regulate blood pressure, um, ventilation, all of those sorts of things. Um, so once that hardwiring is set up, they're much more robust um, and they can handle challenges better. But that first six months um, is a little bit more vulnerable. There's also things within the baby themselves that can make them more vulnerable. So being born early, being born really small for gestational age, um, things like maternal exposure to cigarette smoke, those sorts of things, um, we know make the baby more likely to succumb to pseudocids um, after birth. And then there are the things in the environment, and that's really what our um, safe sleep recommendations are all about. Mm. So the recommendations themselves are always place baby to back, uh, on their back to sleep, 
Keep baby's head and face uncovered. Keep baby smoke free before and after birth. Provide a safe sleeping environment night and day, and that's probably the one that we get the most questions about. Mm. Um, sleep baby in the same uh, in a safe sleep space in the parent or caregiver's room for the first six months, and breastfeed if you can. Um, so I'm really happy to you know to to walk through those as much as you like, or maybe um, address sort of the big questions that we get about those recommendations. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about the because um, this is something I wasn't aware of before I had my first son, um, but I learned about it very soon after the idea that it's recommended that the baby sleeps in your mm. room is um, ideally for the first six months and longer if you can. Um, we did do that for the first six months. Uh, he was the noisiest sleeper and <laughs> I had um, like he was noisy even for a baby. Like I had people be like, he just anyway that's it that's an aside and I had um postnatal anxiety and depression so that was a recipe for disaster but I was completely aware of the research and um I'd love if you could talk a little bit about it but the general like the one sentence summary is that babies bodies sense the presence of adults and that it really helps them um, and keeps them safer in sleep Absolutely. And, and what we know is that relationship works both ways. So babies mm. are soothed and settled by parental comfort, uh, by, by parental presence, um, but also um, parents who have close proximity to their baby um, actually respond even subliminally in sleep to baby's mm. cues. Um, so mm. having bub nearby means that you're just that much more likely to pick up if there's a subtle change. And that's, I suppose, the difference between having um, baby next to you and maybe baby down the hall or, you know, via a monitor or those sorts of things. Is It's mm -hmm. often the really subtle little things that happen first mm -hmm. that cue us in that, okay, there's something not quite right. I'm just going to check on you and make sure you're okay. So it's really protective. So when we're talking about things like baby sleeping in the room, these things are protective because they reduce the risk of SIDS, right? It's Correct. not SUDI because we have some things that are risk factors and they increase the risk of overarching SUDI, things that could have been preventable, but things that are protective are things that prevent SIDS, which are things that we don't have control over, things like unexpected apneas, that kind of stuff. Um, yes and no. So some of the stuff, so like a safe sleep environment night and day, um, mm. for example, would also reduce the risk of fatal sleep accidents. So therefore yes, yeah. reduce the risk of SUDI. So yeah, some, some of the recommendations are very specific, um, mm. but overall we've seen a massive decline in both SIDS and SUDI um, mm. since the recommendations have been put in. Right. That's really yeah, I think I read that it was since the, I mean, and you would know the specifics, so I'd love to hear um, you share them. But I think I read something the other day that since the, nine, I think it was 1990 in Australia that the back to sleep, um, initiative was uh, shared so that babies should be put to sleep on their back and the reduction mm. of um, SIDS or SUDI, I can't remember which one they cited, was more than 85%. Yeah, yeah. so we've seen huge. It is, it is. So just since um, the early 1990s when that back to sleep campaign came in, we've seen an 80% reduction in SIDS. So those yeah. unexplained deaths where we just don't know what happened. We used to see about 300, 350 of those a year and now it's dramatically lowered um so it's mm. become quite a common event and you know i think that is so powerful it, it really points to how important the recommendations are but it also means that we have to be really mindful of not resting on our laurels and mm. um, taking that low rate for granted and maybe forgetting that it's still you know in the background and that we do need to be careful yeah absolutely and i think there's one thing that's really important and kind of timely with um the recent research that's come out um, 
So last year there was um, a study, a very small preprint, um, that found that um, infants who died of SIDS had um, differences in, I'm going to butcher this, but acetylbutyryl cholinesterase or whatever it was. But the thing with this is that um, mm. it's, it's just another possible predictor, but the way it was portrayed in the media has my followers coming to me when I share a safe sleep video saying, why do we need to do any of this anymore? I thought we figured out the cause of SIDS. It's a like brain thing. And I have to sit there and go, no, no, no. Like this is helpful information that might mm. explain one very small facet, but it doesn't undo all the other important stuff. So do you want exactly to right. speak so on that and how you've seen it happen lately? Absolutely. So and that's the really challenging thing about people consuming evidence that's portrayed in the media instead of going directly to the evidence because when you read those studies they are very careful about what they do and don't um, show and what they can and can't claim from the type of study that they are. Um, so what we do know is that um, when we think about that sort of model that helps explain why babies might be vulnerable, mm -hmm. um, issues with brainstem in general and particularly issues in um, certain enzymes, which include the one that you mentioned, um, might be one of the underlying vulnerabilities. So that might explain why some babies can't cope when they're put on their tummy, when they're in a soft mm. bed, when, when they're co-sleeping, whatever it might be that, that then triggers it. So if we can keep the baby's environment safe, we know that we're going to reduce the risk of fatal sleep accidents, but we're also reducing the stressors that are on a baby who already has a potential underlying vulnerability. And because we can't necessarily screen every baby for um, these enzyme deficiencies at the moment, um, because there's actually um, sort of a crossover in the range between um, a baby who has an issue with their level of enzymes and, and a typical baby, um, then, you know, it, it's, it's really helpful information, as you said, um, but at the moment we have to presume that every baby is vulnerable mm -hmm. and work to minimise those risk factors any way we can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Siobhan, it's now your turn to ask a question because I've asked oh, many. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I was just really, um, I was thinking about that because it's so true. Like it's just mm -hmm. because like you might have the safest car on the road. That doesn't mean you don't wear your seatbelt. Like exactly. we, we don't. And like you say, maybe in the future with these um, scientific breakthroughs that are wonderful and help us understand so much more. And I think help, at least for me as a parent, help take the fear out of this scary unknown. I mean, mm -hmm. it's still scary. And any, I mean, I'm six months pregnant at the moment, so this baby might be at risk, um, but I don't know. And so we err on the side of caution. And we do that with so many other things. Um, exactly. So why wouldn't we do that with sleep? I think mm -hmm. um, one thing that I'm just really personally curious about, so I co-slept with my son, um, not as, um, not all the time, but definitely it happened, whereas I definitely, I intend to bed share and co-sleep with this baby just because of my past history. So I'd love to talk a bit about um, Red Nodes and their view on co-sleeping and any kind of recommendations they have about how to make it safe. 
Absolutely. Um, so I always preface this by saying, you know, parenting choices are very individual, nuanced, complex. There's lots of reasons why people make any given parenting decision. And I think something like co-sleeping in particular or baby wearing or lots of those things have very specific um, intentions and feelings behind them for parents. Um, and there's lots of reasons why someone might choose to co-sleep. Red Nose doesn't recommend it um, purely okay. because we know that it does increase the risk. Having said that, we do know that lots of parents choose to co-sleep, um, in which case there are things that you can do to make it safer. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a couple of big things. Um, one is really the, the sleep environment. So it's very important to make sure in the same way that we would always have baby in a safe environment that's got a firm, flat mattress, no additional padding, um, you know, no fluffy doonas, no pillows, none of that stuff. We want to make sure that we're creating that same environment in the co-sleeping space. Um, so really thinking about how you've got your bed set up, um, you know, maybe using a sleeping bag for bub um, so you're not trying to manage blankets that are going to get loose and, and cause chaos, um, never swaddling um, once babies are, um, if babies are going to be sharing a sleep surface, um, because we know all of those things are going to, you know, stack on um, in terms of risk factors. So really thinking about the physical space, also thinking about how um, people are positioned in bed. Um, so if there are two um, parents or caregivers sharing the, the sleeping space, I think the common sense approach for most parents would be put them in the middle and that way they can't mm. roll out. Um, mm. But what we know is that actually increases the risk of overlaying. Um, mm. So instead of it being, you know, that they're exposed to one parent um, and the sleep surface, they've, they're now between two. So it, either of those parents may end up with um, part of their body, for example, resting on the baby, which is very dangerous in terms of them being able to take a full breath. Um, mm. So we want them on one side, but we also need to make sure that they can't get wedged between the wall and the bed and that they can't roll out. Um, so there's a bit of logistics involved when people do yeah. choose to sleep if they want to do it safely. And there are also times when we um, really strongly recommend that people avoid it because it is particularly dangerous. So we know babies in the first three months are more vulnerable in a co-sleeping environment. So thinking about timing is important. Mm -hmm. um, also thinking about the people in the bed with the baby. Um, so we know that if a parent smokes and then bed shares, that increases the risk dramatically. Um, but also thinking about, you know, how rousable are you or your partner? Um, so I know so many parents are just exhausted and it's really hard to wake them up because they're in a very deep sleep once they get there. Um, so, you know, is that going to be a problem if, you know, you did end up um, pressing onto Bubby or something when you move in your sleep, are you going to be able to respond and wake up? Um, and that especially goes for anyone who might be on medications that make them drowsy or who might be um, experiencing some alcohol or drug um dependency issues or any of those sorts of things where we know that, you know, their ability to wake up um, if there's an issue is suppressed. And sometimes it's even just down to the individual parents. So I know like my partner sleeps like the dead. Um, we literally had someone um, doing work on our stumps under the house. They had a jackhammer going and he was still fast asleep. So I wouldn't how do I? How do I take those? What is um, he taking? I need to sleep like I, that. Oh, <laughs> I, I know I'm, I'm deeply jealous myself. Um, but I know, so there are some times when we particularly sort of say, you know, as much as we understand people wanting to co-sleep and, and it is a choice that many parents make, there are some times when it's just super risky and we really mm. recommend avoiding it then. The other thing to think about is accidental co-sleeping. Mm. Um, so, and I think this has happened to almost every parent I know, if you ask mm -hmm. them in a quiet space where they don't feel threatened, um, that, you know, um, they've been having a contact cuddle on the couch and they've nodded off 
um, and those sorts of things. And what we know is that there's a huge risk associated with um, those environments mm. because the risk is, so you've got baby who's lying on your chest, you're lying down, they're in the prone position, which is that tummy sleeping position, which is already dangerous. Mm. Um, so we want babies sleeping on their backs because it helps them maintain their airway. Um, so being in that prone position to start with is a risk. But then, you know, the parent falls asleep, there's the potential of part of their body pressing up against Bubby and making it harder for them to breathe or Bub becoming wedged um, between the parent's body and the, the side of the sofa. So those sort of accidental co-sleeping um, situations are especially dangerous. So if you're having a contact cuddle, um, I love them. Like, I think it's a, it's a beautiful way to bond with your baby, but just being aware of the risk and either doing it when there's another adult in the house who can either nudge you or take baby and put them in a safe sleep space or when you start to feel yourself nodding off you know bub's fast mm. asleep they've had a nice 15 minute cuddle and you're like oh i'm gonna fall asleep um go, go pop them down in their safe sleep space and then have a nap because you need it mm. um, but we just don't want it to happen by accident next to uh or with your baby on top of you mm. i remember like i don't even remember like she would have been maybe three-ish months that's kind of when it starts to like really wane on you i think when you really start yeah. to get tired um and i would i used to breastfeed in bed i had like a pillow and i'd sit up straight and i'd breastfeed in bed in the middle of the night and i remember falling asleep with her in my arms and at that point i was like this isn't okay something needs to change because then when she wasn't in my arms i would wake up i mean postnatal anxiety came in hot there i'd wake up freaking out looking for my baby in my bed because i thought i'd fallen asleep <laughs> with her in my arms and then i'd find her in the bassinet next to me but it that that kind of accidental co-sleeping also happens and it was at that point i was like this isn't okay like i need to make changes because she's just in an adult bed on an like elevated surface in my arms she yeah. could have fallen out so easily and it was just like one of the things that i was like this is a bad sign and i think it's that i think it's that more than anything else that makes parents co-sleep um and it's not always during the day. Sometimes it's in the middle of the night, especially in the middle of the night. Mm. Um, and those kinds of things can be really scary and not knowing how to then change your feeding position if you absolutely can't mm. wake, can't stay awake in the middle of the night when you're feeding the baby, not knowing how to set your bed up, not knowing to move pillows out of the way to make sure you don't have any loose clothing or long hair, make sure that your baby isn't somewhere they're gonna fall off the bed or be rolled onto by another parent who doesn't even know they're in the bed um mm. all that kind of stuff can be hugely important to know and isn't really educated about um cool so i have one really curly one i know we've got like a list of questions that you were like no, prepared to, to answer <laughs> so my postpartum anxiety is going to show in a major way here and this might be actually really important for anyone who has a lot of anxiety around um, their infant and SIDS, because that was definitely me. I wouldn't sleep during the day um, while my infant napped. I would watch her chest rise and fall on the monitor because oh, I was yeah. I was so afraid of just like sudden sleep apnea, like just stopping, just mm -hmm. no more breathing. Um, and so one of the things I did to appease my anxiety, even as a very educated person, knowing that these things aren't approved, um, as a medical device was use something called the outlet, um, which is like your, um, it's like a sort of like a pulse oximeter, blood oxygen, yeah. pulse oximeter. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. 
a wearable device and that helped me reduce my anxiety. Um, now I know that there's a lot of controversies around it because people try to use it instead of safe sleep. I think that's but, the big thing. Yeah. yeah. So I think where we use these things and as an adjunct, aware of their limitations, mm -hmm. um, then they're not going to cause harm. Um, mm -hmm. Whether they do any good remains very much up in the air. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But if even if it's just from a case of okay, I can take a deep breath. I can sleep um, now. <laughs> that's a, you know that's that is a tangible benefit. The big thing is, as you said, we don't want it to replace the safe sleep recommendations. So, you know, it doesn't replace, for example, having them in the same room um, because there are things that you're going to pick up on before a monitor or a machine ever will. Mm. So, you know, small things like a, a change in the noises they're making when they're breathing or mm. a small thing like a change in their respiratory pattern, you know, you'll get that sort of, oh, that doesn't sound right, mm. and you'll, you'll eyeball them and go, oh, okay, and you'll check. Mm. Um, whereas for a machine to pick something like that up, it usually has to be, and it's usually much further down the line by the time yeah. it starts changes in saturations or heart rate or those sorts of things. Um, or, you know, that the baby's movement has stopped for X number of seconds mm. to trigger a, a movement mat or whatever the monitoring is. Um, so I think as an adjunct, like we don't say to people, don't um, mm. buy them. It's just, you know, be using them as well, not instead. Um, mm. And be aware of their limitations and also self-monitor, I think, is important mm. as well. Like you've touched on anxiety. What I hear from some parents is the number of false alarms mm. associated with some types of monitors and some babies, quite frankly. Um, yes. There are some babies who can put the perfect <laughs> monitor on babies. it. It's just going to yeah. go off all the time. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think mm. uh, if, it, if it's alleviating anxiety, then it's doing some good. Um, if it's worsening someone's anxiety, which can sometimes happen with a lot of false mm -hmm. alarms, you know, people get really, like every time it beeps, they nearly have a stroke, mm -hmm. um, you know, just then, okay, is it actually serving a purpose? Is it useful? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, that one's a very much um, individual choice. And, you know, talking to, and I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying it, um, Karen, who's our CEO, Karen Lutsky, um, she is a bereaved mum and she said, you know, as much mm -hmm. as I knew that they don't necessarily reduce the risk. It's the only reason I slept after my first baby had died. Mm -hmm. yes. um, so I think yeah. particularly, and we yeah. hear it all the time, like I do regular expos where we're talking to a couple hundred parents in a day um, and the number of parents will come up to us and talk to us about their experience and whether, you know, they've had, and it might not have even been a Sudi or a Sid's death, it might have mm -hmm. been a stillbirth or something else, but they've got that really heightened anxiety. They know that things don't always go to plan um you know i think having that level of reassurance can be really helpful as we said as long as it's not instead of the recommendations mm. and as long as it's not mentally harmful to the parent because it's exactly yeah if it's good. helping not harming yeah amazing all right your time for a question siobhan i'll stop taking over <laughs> no 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 that's all right thank you um i think one thing that could be good to talk about is that i know and i see it um in like questions of mum's groups on Facebook all the time is my baby's rolling, they keep rolling onto their tummy. Um, I keep waking them up and rolling them back. Um, and I remember having these thoughts when my little one started rolling, but thankfully I had already been to the Red Nose website and I'd seen all your recommendations. But I think um, it's so easy to get, and particularly because the um, Red Nose guidelines can give families a sense of, okay, this is what I need to do. But then sometimes parents don't remember that there's flexibility involved and that the goalposts change as your baby develops. 
So can you talk a little bit about rolling and back sleeping and then how that might Absolutely. So I think it's really important to think about the wording of the recommendation, which isn't always sleep baby on their back. It's mm -hmm. always place baby on their back for sleep. And mm -hmm. the reason for that is we know that babies roll and congratulations, that is a normal milestone and that is awesome. Um, so we want them to roll. That's good. Um, the trick, you know, the, the challenge is um, when people, you know, I, I know it can be a huge source of anxiety for a lot of parents. You know, now they're not staying on their back where I put them. Are they at increased risk? What we know is that once babies can confidently roll in both directions, um, they can be allowed to find their own position of comfort. So you don't need to be hovering over their cot to reposition them every time they move. Um, there's sometimes a brief period where the baby's rolling from back to front so they can get themselves into that prone position, but they can't necessarily get themselves back onto their back. Um, if you are, you know, because it's it's likely to be in that first six months, ideally you're in the room, if you spot them, um, you know, that they're in that prone position, okay, that's when you might ease them back onto their back. Um, but even then, the more important thing is to make sure that you've got the safe sleep space. So if mm. you've got a firm mattress with no padding, nothing that they can sink their face into and suffocate, mm. then, you know, the odds of something negative happening once they roll over, particularly when that's, you know, usually after sort of three or four months, um, mm. that, they're, that they're starting to roll, um, you know, the odds of that causing a problem are starting to wane. Um, so I think parents can be reassured rolling is a normal milestone. We want them to do it. Once they can roll in both directions, let them at it. Um, that's a good time, though, to think about the bedding. Um, so I know, you know, a lot of parents start out with a, a swaddle and a blanket, which is lovely. It's great for a newborn. Um, once babies are a little bit older, sometimes a safe sleeping bag is a better choice just because keeping a blanket on a mobile baby is hard work um and putting them, in a, putting them in a safe sleeping bag that they take with them wherever they go um just reduces you know them getting uncovered them getting you know you're not having to worry about making sure it's tucked in tightly and that sort of stuff um so you know it's something to think about but as long as you're providing that safe environment um then you know they can be allowed to find their own position of comfort awesome so one of the things i see really often on social media. So social media is the bane of, I think, every scientist's existence because there's so much misinformation and there's so many people with really large followings, which unfortunately translate to expertise and trust in parents. We've got research to support this now. But one of the things I see sleep trainers say a lot is swaddle that baby until um, you absolutely cannot swaddle them anymore. Um, and they're recommending swaddling babies like up to nine months. <laughs> what's what's your what what's the the research on swaddling do we need to do it all um is it a protective factor at all is it a risk factor when does it become a risk factor all those things so swaddling um can be a really useful strategy for younger strategy for younger babies because it helps them regulate it helps them feel contained um it helps you know suppress their startle so they don't flail about and wake themselves up um, our recommendation is that we stop wrapping as soon as that baby looks like they're going to start rolling. And that's from the perspective of, you know, if a baby's got their arms tucked in and then they end up in that prone position, they're not going to be able to get themselves back onto their back into that position of safety. So, you know, babies rolling is okay, but they need the ability to get back onto their back. Um, so if they're swaddled, that's when 
um, it becomes risky. Um, so we would, you know, swaddling is fine if parents want to do it. So not all babies like being swaddled. Um, some of them actively loathe it um, and we'll tell you all about it. Um, and, you know, for some parents, it's something that they use for the first couple of weeks and then, you know, they, they find that it's actually not necessary anymore once the baby starts to, you know, develop a little bit more coordination and is able to self-settle a little bit more. Um, so, you know, I think it's very individual in terms of baby, very individual in terms of parenting and parenting styles. Um, also then thinking, you know, are you using a swaddling or a sleeping bag? Um, those sorts of things. So um, it is very variable, I think. Um, in terms of evidence, there's um, some evidence to suggest that babies who are swaddled um, might, it might take them a little bit longer to roll prone. Mm. Um, but at the moment, um, we don't sort of say, you know, you should swaddle your young baby because there's um, mixed evidence. And, in, and you know, depending on the organisation, um, some of the international organisations actually recommend against it. Um, so at the moment, it's a little bit of a mixed bag, which is why it's not part of the six safe sleep recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that for young babies before they're rolling, there's no good evidence that it increases risk and it can be a really useful settling strategy. So um, it's just important to stop once the baby looks like they're going to roll. Absolutely. And I did remember Sienna, once, did she like yeah. swaddling? <laughs> no, she was a, she was a Houdini baby. Like, yeah, and at, was that, too. at that point, I thought that swaddling was really important. It wasn't until I started doing social media that I looked up the research on swaddling and found out that there is no conclusive evidence that it is effective for sleep. Um, because the babies are all so different. You cannot even hone in on one like concrete thing for an age, but I remember looking into things and so I looked into the Ollie swaddle and actually ended up getting one from the US with great effort because it was a Velcro swaddle because she used to unwrap herself and put the blanket over her face and I was terrified so I swapped as <laughs> soon as she was like a week old I was like okay we're in those little like love to dream swaddles where she looks like a starfish because she couldn't get that over her face because I was so worried she was gonna suffocate but I got an ollie swaddle and it's just like massive pieces of velcro and it's just straight jacketing your baby and she got out of that too and she hated it um <laughs> but it does lead to a good question because the ollie swaddle might be different because that's kind of just like a, a tight swaddle um but things like the nested bean like a weighted chest sleep sack or the merlin mm -hmm. sleep suit which is those heavy like everything's heavy what's the guidance on that for infant sleep that's actually a great question. So we don't recommend putting anything weighted over the chest of the baby. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms, we know that there have been a couple of deaths. There was a death of an infant in childcare with a weighted blanket um, in the US. So we are aware of some examples um, of fatalities, but even just from a mechanistic point of view, you know, we've mm. got a soft compressible chest wall and a diaphragm that fatigues pretty easily. So the breathing muscles of the baby aren't terribly strong and they get tired quicker than an adult. Um, if you then add any sort of compression, whether it's, you know, from really tight wrapping or whether it's a weight on the baby's chest, um, that's going to make it harder mechanistically for them to take that next big deep breath. Um, and we never want to do anything that's going to impede a baby's normal breathing. Um, so from our perspective, anything with weights in it would be um, really concerning. Um, in terms of things that have zips and Velcro and those sorts of things, um, just to be you know mindful around there's really limited safety data um, on a lot of those products. So I think everyone sort of makes assumptions about 
Um, you know, if it's being marketed, it must have been checked, must be safe. Um, and, you know, there's so much variation in the market. So it is really, you know, thinking about this. And we, and we don't talk about specific products because there's so much variation. There's so many new products every week um, in this space. But always bringing it back to the safe sleep recommendations. Um, and one of the things that we do think about is, you know, if the baby is wrapped in like a, a muslin wrap, so like a lightweight, just plain old fabric, that's been done for centuries, um, you know, that the only thing holding that closed is actually the baby's body weight. So mm. if that baby then was to roll um, unexpectedly, because we're going to stop swaddling them if we know they're rolling, um, but if they do happen to sneak up on you and roll unexpectedly, um, the, the, the wrap itself is more likely to loosen because the weight that was holding it closed is now off, um, mm. off the back of the wrap. Um, so the baby's more likely to have a little bit of room. Again, this is mechanistic. We don't have... Uh, like I don't have a randomised control trial in front of me um, around this because from an ethics point of view, they don't like us doing things where babies are at risk. Um, but Good point. No, um, I think, you know, from, from a mechanistic point of view, we've got a good reason to think that um, that type of swaddling um, hasn't been shown to increase risk. But I think with any new product, we just have to have a little bit of an index of suspicion of mm. what does this change and might that impact on the safety of that process of wrapping or that process of whatever it might be that we're doing with the bub. Yeah. All good points. And like uh, the weighted the weighted blankets and weighted things, which are so marketed to adults, I can understand how and why it's moved into the infant sleep space. But like you say, hmm. completely counterintuitive to the way that babies are, are born with immature breathing systems. Um, I've got another curly question for you to keep things right. exciting. Um, <laughs> so my son, who's now three, um, had uh, severe gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, as it's, it's runs in our family, we're very genetically lucky like that. Um, and we, I have full expectation that this little one that I'm pregnant with will as well. Um, so we did a bunch of things that I know are not supported um, with safe sleep, such as inclining the bed. Um, but it kind of became an issue of he didn't sleep um, horizontally on his back. Um, he would just scream um, and then uh, exhaust himself um, and then wake up and keep screaming. Um, so what we ended up doing is working uh, working with the guidelines and trying to marry the guidelines of the Reflux Association with the SIDS um, Safe 7 Sleep and all these kinds of things. And I like we both experienced a lot of anxiety because those things weren't compatible in lots of different ways. Um, so I'm kind of asking you to answer a question that you can't answer, but I'd love to hear any, <laughs> any that you have on the matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know anecdotally some parents do find that inclining their bub seems to help. Um, what's really interesting is that the um, studies on GERD, so um, mm. gastroesophageal reflux disease, um, seem to show no difference in symptomatic reflux between babies when they're slept flat, slept inclined, um, those sorts of things. So, you know, part of it might um, be also around things like sleep cues um, and, and sleep associations, mm -hmm. um, you know, babies are used to being slept in a particular way um, mm -hmm. sometimes, and that can that can then create um, new new settling strategy, new settling challenges. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, our recommendation is don't incline for um, good unless directed by a medical professional. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's something. If you're finding, you know, they absolutely won't settle flat, we really need 
that conversation to happen with mm-hmm. the babies, doctors, and particularly their specialist if they've got one, mm-hmm. um, so that we've got clear guidance on what we can do um, to help mitigate some of those symptoms. Um, but from an evidence point of view, um, and, and again, you know, everyone um, takes the evidence up until the point where it doesn't fit with their experience and then they're guided by their experience. Um, yep. So I think, you know, um, if, if you are going to do those things, it's just really critically important to know how that influences risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the reason that we don't want babies inclined, and this goes for tilting the cot, it goes for swings and, um, you know, bouncinets and um, rock, and, rock and plays and all of those sorts of um, devices as well, mm-hmm. is babies have got a big noggin compared to a tiny head and they've, uh, sorry, tiny body, and they've got a big occiput as well. So the bulgy bit at the back of their head is more pronounced. And what that means from a mechanical perspective is when they're lying flat, their head is pushed forward a tiny bit. When they're on an incline, that becomes really exaggerated. So they end up with their chin on their chest. Um, And the risk with that is they've got small flexible airways. And it's a little bit like if you're using a garden hose, and you kink the hose off a little bit, the water still flows. But if you kink mm-hmm. it a tiny bit more, all of a sudden the water stops. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happens with the baby's airway as well. Because it's soft, it's flexible. If they're in that chin to chest position, the airway can kink off. Um, so we just need to be really careful if we do have a baby in any situation where they are on an incline, um, that we're aware uh, that that increases the risk of an airway obstruction. Um, so it's then weighing up. Um, and the same goes for, you know, sometimes people will talk about sleeping their babies prone, so sleeping them on their tummy um, to manage GERD and that sort of stuff. But um, the recommendation from, I want to say the gastroenterology, uh, it might be College of America, I think it is. Um, I can't remember the exact acronym, um, is, is essentially, you know, yes, um, people try lots of different things to help their baby through their symptoms, but the risk of harm from GERD is low compared to the risk of harm from SUDI. So weighing those two things up, we are better to still follow the recommendations wherever possible, unless we've got specific medical um, guidance otherwise. So there are some babies, for example, who have to be slept prone because they've got airway um, issues, but it's really rare. Um, And that's when we would get sort of a, a note from the doctor to say, you know, that this baby should be slept this way for this period of time under these conditions um, just to make that sure. Makes com- yeah, that makes complete sense. And presumably, and I know definitely from our experience, is that we started trying things once everything else stopped working. And then presumably by that stage, the baby is more tired. So they tend to be more likely to fall asleep in that position. There's this erroneous assumption that mm. that position meant oh, that they, yeah. And it might've been that, it might not have. That's the beauty of children. You never ever know. I say beauty, you can tell that I'm being incredibly sarcastic. It's very frustrating. You never know what causes what or why. Um, but that is a really interesting point. And I, I was aware of that research. I learned about it after we started doing that and then we stopped doing that mind you he started to get a little bit better um but i think yeah like it's it becomes the challenge of and one thing that i sorry i'm on a bit of a brain tangent but one thing that i found really useful to think about was that when we, we ended up seeing a sleep pediatrician um for his third um and one thing that i found really comforting was that the sleep pediatrician was really emphasized the family unit's well-being, and mm. that he emphasised that yes, we're looking at the baby's sleep, but that's not actually what it's about. We need to look at how the family is sleeping, because 
your baby's lack of sleep, it means that you're unwell and that your husband is unwell and that the whole family is unwell. Um, and that whilst it might not be too problematic for the baby, because he will figure out how to sleep um, in some capacity, like it's really disrupting the whole family and finding ways to do um, sleep differently that don't involve risky sleep practices, mm. but finding other solutions that ensures that the family unit is healthier is really the focus, um, which I know that Red Nose is all about as well. Mm. So, you know, I think um, if we're aware of the recommendations and we know how to how to enact them, um, then sort of, you know, we can make informed decisions about our parenting practices, whatever those look like. Um, so I think it's, you know, starting from a starting point of everyone should follow the recommendations. Um, but then, you know, at least if people, so for example, you know, we said ideally the, per the baby's in their own safe sleep space, but, you know, if parents are choosing to co-sleep, there are things they can do to mitigate risk. Um, and I think, you know, taking that harm minimisation approach, um, mm. you know, we don't want to be the people with the big stick. Um, that's not what we're here for. We're just about education and empowerment. So... Um, you know, and working with families, as you said, to find ways to still use the safe sleep recommendations, but to, um, you know, find things that work for them. Mm. Absolutely. And I think one of the really important things, and I guess you guys would come up with this, come up against this a lot as Red Nose, is the intergenerational transmission of knowledge. Mm. So Ooh, yeah. I know that with Siobhan, when we were both pregnant with our first children, she told me the story of her family and Gerd and that her dad, your dad, Siobhan, had actually made mm -hmm. a purpose-built inclined cot. So mm -hmm. Siobhan, you were already predisposed to thinking mm -hmm. that it was going to be effective because you have this intergenerational transmission of knowledge, which yep. there is something to be said for intergenerational transmission oh. of knowledge, but it can also be placebo. It can also be confirmation bias. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really hard to change thought patterns um, when they're tandered down from mother to daughter for so many generations and then it's really hard to be that daughter and to turn around to mm -hmm. your mother and go no we don't do that anymore I remember so many uncomfortable conversations with my mom being like no she has to lie on her back and my mom was like we were told in the 90s <laughs> yes, to sleep you on yes. your front because yeah. that was safer yeah. and we had to put you in a, a like I put you in a swing like a hammock and that was safer because you couldn't roll and I was just like but that's not how we do it anymore and like we have to be empathetic and understanding of that intergenerational transmission of knowledge. And we have to also care for it as well, especially in like our First Nations people's cultures where part of child rearing is a cultural practice that ties them to their, to their heritage. Um, so how do you navigate that? What's the best information mm -hmm. that you can provide? That was so many questions all in one, but what's the best no, information no, 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 I've that? I'm with you. So I think um, what you said about empathy is probably the starting point for me. So I think acknowledging that anyone who's trying to give you love and support and pass on wisdom is almost always doing it from a really good place. Um, so acknowledging that and acknowledging that you're so glad that they're involved and that you are going to come to them with questions and those sorts of things, acknowledging the wisdom um, that the previous generations have. Um, I think then also being able to explain the why. Um, so, you know, I was um, an 80s baby and, you know, we had bumpers and cushions and pillows <laughs> and matching doonas and 
and I look at those beds now and go death trap um, <laughs> but, you know for my mum that was how you expressed caring was having this beautifully coordinated nursery that had all the matchy matchy um, and that was you know a sign of, of love and caring so to then be told none of that is okay um, is can be really confronting um, mm. for, for grandparents and I'm saying grandparents but anyone who's you know providing wisdom from previous um, parenting generations um, so I think, you know, acknowledging the good things that they're telling you that, yep, you know, that lines up with what I'm being told from other sources and then being able to explain the why for, you know, I, I know you slept us on our tummies and we were fine, but what we know is that a lot of babies weren't. Um, and since mm -hmm. we've been sleeping babies on their back, there's been an 80% decline mm -hmm. in sudden unexpected deaths in infancy. So we know that putting babies on their back to sleep is protective. Mm. Um, so, you know, being able to come with that knowledge um, and that confidence of, I know that this was okay when, when you were parenting and I know that, you know, you did a great job, I turned out fine, um, but that, you know, we know different things now um, and we've got, we've got more data to work with, that's it. Um, so it's not judgment, um, it's just, you know, what, what can I take from your experience that's going to add to my parenting journey and what can I bring from, you know, what I'm reading, what I'm hearing, um, you know, the, the evidence-based research that I'm collecting for myself as well. Mm. It's tricky though. It's and it's some of so tricky. It's super frustrating. And I think people are really worried about hurting feelings. Um, the other thing you can do is make us the bad guys. <laughs> so I've actually got a um, link in the website specifically for grandparents that goes through a lot of these, you know, we did it this way and my babies were fine. What's wrong with you people? Um, <laughs> those kinds of questions. Um, Cause we know it's, it's a really tough conversation for a new parent to have, particularly mm. if they're not actually confident in their own parenting yet. Um, mm. So, you know, it's a hard place to be. So it's okay to also refer on, um, you know, this is where I read that. Could I get you to have a look at it and just see what you think? Um, and that way, you know, it's coming from someone else. You're not challenging authority. You're referring back to an evidence-based um, organization. Yeah. I'm going to dub myself best. in. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm going to dub oh, no, myself no, in and say that I had no empathy with my mum. I was like, we don't do it that way anymore. <laughs> and like, you know, it was probably super rough. So sorry, mum, but, uh, um, I'll do better this time. <laughs> Maybe everyone else cannot do what I did. <laughs> I was going to say with the transmission of like the intergenerational knowledge, one of the best mm. conversations, and actually it was, I ended up leaving it feeling really empowered, was my um, husband's grandmother, who was a midwife in the 40s. She um, came over to visit the new baby and said, so are we swaddling now? Or are we not swaddling? What are we up to? It keeps changing. <laughs> and I was like, I actually found that so um, helpful in that like mm. the, the practices and recommendations change and that's okay. And it's mm. okay, not only is it okay to go with what we're currently onto, but it's okay as a parent to change if it's not working for you, which is exactly everything you've been saying today as well. Like that mm. um, you guys are all about um, harm reduction because some of these things, because we don't understand, um, it's a reason it's called unexpected infant death syndrome. Like we don't, we don't expect these things. We don't understand a lot about the mechanisms behind. There's a lot we have learned, but there's still mm. a lot that we don't know. Mm. So it's about harm minimization, harm reduction, um, but then also educating people and that they get to choose what they do and what works for them. Um, I didn't have- I a think really it's, you know, that, that empowerment 
element mm. of things. So where people, I, and it's super corny, but knowledge is power. Like when people mm. know as much as they can about a, a topic, then at least whatever decisions they're making are informed decisions. Um, yeah. And it's up to them to weigh the pros and the cons and the risks and the benefits. Yeah. But at least it's coming from a place of empowerment and knowledge, not guesswork and hope. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we, my, my biggest thing is I never want to hear from a parent if only someone had told me. Yeah. Um, for me, that would, that would be the most heartbreaking thing I could hear. So, mm. um, you know, if we can get the knowledge out there, and then people will do with that what they will. Um, and, you know, they've got lots of different reasons for making lots of different decisions. But I think, you know, and also helping people understand the why I think is also really important. So just having a checklist of, you know, do this, don't do that hmm. is a starting point. But hmm. I think when people understand the mechanisms behind what we're suggesting, hmm. um, it helps them, again, make those informed decisions. Hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more like even just I mean and again I did my own research but hearing the way you explain the the propping of the cot and the the mechanism the mechanistic Mm. behind instead of just don't do it hearing the explanation of how it increases risks um is just really helpful super helpful to think about so Mm. I couldn't agree more there's two things that I'm thinking about right now and one of them is that with all of the safe sleep stuff, it's not about perfection because this rigid Mm. dogmatic adherence to safe sleep can actually be dangerous when mothers like me fall asleep holding their baby in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. breastfeeding them. That is far far more unsafe and that's because I had this very rigid idea of perfection in safe sleep and I couldn't um, deviate from it. And it took me a little while and a few dozing off with my baby in my arms to really go, this is not okay. Um, So we don't want perfection um we want to make sure you're doing everything you can to ensure your child's safety and be prepared to make changes that are safe when you feel like you need them whether that is calling in a night nanny whether that is making a grandparent move in um to help support you in the middle of the night whether that is supplementing with formula so that you can get some sleep too even though formula isn't a risk factor, but breastfeeding is a protective factor. Supplementing with formula in the middle of the night when you need it can also be okay. Um, And I know there are many people listening who are going to probably scream a little bit when I say this, but choosing to sleep train if you have no other choices. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that can be the choice you make to keep your baby safest. It won't always be, it wasn't the choice for me, it wasn't the choice for Siobhan, but we had other supports available and not every family does. So perfection is never the goal with safe sleep. It's, um, it's about reducing the risk wherever you can. And there are things that are really easy to reduce the risk. So if you are co-sleeping, knowing that if you're going to have a chance of sleeping with your baby that night, don't have any alcohol, don't take any sedating drugs. If you're smoking, just forget it. Um, if you are a heavy sleeper, probably forget it. If your husband and dog are in the bed, kick them out, make them sleep somewhere else because that's not safe. Sorry, these are all like, <laughs> some of these are from personal experience. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, like, don't you love? Yeah, it's, it's actually your... great being mission pets because it's one that you know, frequently don't think about what we say. You know, if the toddler mm. and the dog are in the bed as well, it's not safe. Um, <laughs> so rethinking. Well, if, yeah, if, if having a... If having a second adult in the bed is not safe, my toddler, who is a psychopath in the bed, definitely not safe. Oh. All right, Siobhan, any other questions? 
Um, I don't think so. I think I've asked all my curly ones. Um, we do like curly and questions. Then, uh, we do, we do. Oh, it's, I mean, it's all just to inform my own thing because I've been thinking mm-hmm. a lot about, um, and I was so grateful that obviously the messaging and the public health um, kind of mm. information and campaigning has been effective because I knew exactly where to go to to find the information when yeah. I, because I, like Kristen, I went into um, my first pregnancy and postpartum thinking, of course, I'm not going to co-sleep. That's not safe. Um, and and there, it's it's not as safe. That's absolutely true. But it's safer than doing it in an unplanned way. It's much safer than doing it in a. There are things a, we can, yeah, we can exactly. Do. And I yeah. think as well, like before you have children, and even for people who don't interact with children, there's this assumption that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you will get the answer, the same answer every time. But it's no. And Kristen's shaking her head vigorously. But that. It's not about um, choosing to do the right or the wrong thing. It's about weighing up your options and having the information to make the safest and best choice for your family. And maybe that's choosing something risky, but maybe it's less risky than the alternatives. Um, And it's about just, yeah, finding what works for you and your family in the safest way possible. Beck, my last question is, where can we find all of this wonderful information? Where do we go? So we have so many different places um, that parents and caregivers can go. So we've got a website that has an advice hub. So if your question hasn't already been asked on there, which it probably has because there's a huge bank of them, um, but you can flick us a question either via the website or email. Um, and the email's on the website. Um, we've also got the safe sleep line. So you can call us and talk directly to an educator that's um, staffed Monday to Friday during business hours. We also have parent forums that are run every, um, the last Tuesday of every month. So I literally just finished one before um, this conversation Um, and it's a one hour free webinar. We have a different topic each month. um, So parents can pop along to those whenever they like um, for whatever topics interest them. Um, And we always have some time at the end as well for Q&A. You can pop along to the Pregnancy Babies and Children's Expos. We're always um, Mm. there and ready to, to answer questions, hand out brochures, do whatever we can do. Um, And the big one is Safe Sleep Week, as you mentioned at the start. So that runs from 6th to the 12th of March. We've got a free parent webinar on tips and trips, uh, sorry, tips and traps for safe sleep. Um, So really, you know, what we've been talking about today, you know, the the nitty gritty of actually implementing the safe sleep recommendations Mm. and what parents can be mindful of. Um, So that's on Tuesday the 7th. Um, if people are interested. So please go to www.rednose.org.au to find any of those resources, including the sign up for Safe Sleep Week. That is amazing. And that'll be live. Oh, sorry. That'll be live as as soon as this episode is live because this is going out on March 7th. I can't do maths. Is that right? Yes, March 7th. Yes. Oh, I was right. Yay. Yes, yes, next Tuesday. And, um, and if people can't um, if people can't get along to that, they can also register and um, a recording will be sent out to anyone who's registered. Oh, oh awesome. amazing. I did too busy wrangling other babies. Yes, Always. yeah, yeah. I did not realise you guys had so many different ways to, no, like, provide support. Neither. I just thought it was the website <laughs> and, like, social media. Oh, oh, my God. God. So, many, so many new things. We love that. All right, well, thanks so much. Blah, blah, blah. I can't talk. Thanks so much for joining us. It was so great to have so much expertise. And I think um, mm. Siobhan sounds like she learnt a lot about... I the, did. It was wonderful. About, thinking about sleep from a mechanistic point of view, which I think a lot of people do. And what, like you've also elucidated why there isn't as much evidence. Um, I mean, I should have thought about this, but it's very unethical to do those things with babies. So, of course, we don't have a lot of evidence on these things. Um, 
So it was really enlightening for Siobhan's future baby and my potential future baby. So I really appreciate you coming along to chat with us. Thank you so much. It was lovely seeing everyone. Of course. Thank you so much, Beck. Welcome back. Well, not really welcome back. You've been here the whole time, but I guess we haven't. I Well, we have. Um, <laughs> we have. It's been. <laughs> Best welcome back ever, Kristen. I love okay. chaos. I am chaos, but <laughs> Beck was amazing. Um, okay. was. I have, I've had a migraine for two days, okay? The I fact know. that I am here is just is impressive. Fascinating. I'm probably going to go curl into a ball in a dark little cave that Oops. is my bedroom until my toddler comes home in 25 minutes, which it's going to be great. Anyways, so that was an amazing chat. <laughs> Siobhan, like I have a pretty good control of my anxiety now, but mm. that might be because I don't have a newborn baby. Um, yeah. But I am yep. now pregnant and looking towards uh, having a newborn again. So some of that mm-hmm. conversation brought back that anxiety mm-hmm. yet again I don't know if you experienced too but I was like when when Beck was talking about some things I was like <laughs> me too no no I absolutely was too I'm glad you brought it up because a few things that she was some of her answers and her answers were great beautiful. this is all me and not her but I was kind of me like too. in my mind I'm like but 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 I'm like Siobhan calm down you don't you have to argue that. your case that's not what it's about she was also, literally telling you that the parents get to make choices she was literally telling you you don't have to argue your case um, yeah. and in fact she was telling you that she supports you so yeah. calm down get off your little <laughs> anyway no I completely agree and I we've both been very open with this in the past um, that sleep and SIDS and SIDS concerns and safe sleep and all this stuff were things that um, our postpartum anxiety really um, latched around. onto um, so, so we if any of you are experiencing that we feel you. Um, Same. It's it's really hard, and no doubt we, we keep really need to find an expert in this who can tell us how to manage our anxiety before our babies arrive so that we don't have this same problem because I am already like I am I am nine weeks pregnant like I am very far away from having a newborn but that anxiety hits me in the middle of the night like when I'm like Mm. I wake up in the middle of the night and I am panicked about the future and it's like okay this isn't my brain is already heading towards postpartum anxiety mode we need Mm. to we need to solve this and if we need that then there are many other people out here in podcast land that also need it so we need to find someone so if you know someone yeah please yeah let, let us, us know because um, we need the help this isn't so I've got two things this isn't mm-hmm. quite that but I um so way mm-hmm. back when before so Tima was about a year old and mm-hmm. Natalie from highly sensitive family on Instagram mm-hmm. who is a wonderful human person that runs an um, a similarly wonderful account as opposed she... to a non-human person yes <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you're you're right she did a um a zoom about um I want another baby or um I want to have another baby but um dot, dot, my dot. life correct yep. um the problem is you're pregnant with one so and I'm um, still not sure know. why <laughs> Look, but the point is she's turned it into a full-blown course. So when Mm -hmm. I did that version of it, it was um, a Zoom chat with a few guests and it was Mm. perfect. Um, Mm. And I've since worked through a lot of the stuff, but she's turned it Mm. into like a proper 
course, like a 12 week course with a whole bunch of things. So it could be if that's something you want to check out or whether anyone else wants to check out. Um, I know mm. there's an early bird discount at the moment. Um, <laughs> not sponsored, guys. <laughs> no, it's not sponsored. No, I just, just a big fan. I'm a huge fan of Natalie. She mm. and all the stuff. So I did a baby mini version of the course back when she first mm. started thought of it. And it's become much more um, evolved. It's been, yeah. Um, yeah. So I would do it if I hadn't already, I haven't, if I hadn't already done it, I would do it again. And part of me was like, should I just do it again? I'm like, no, Sean, you're just, you're about to pay off a kitchen. You don't need to be buying courses that you have already done because you just love the person that runs them so much. But anyway, all yes. of that aside, but that's not specifically related to the sleep stress, which is what your mm. point was. Yes. But um, next, next Friday, this Friday, I've got an appointment with my GP to think about my mental health plan, which is in Australia, how you receive subsidized access to um, psychologists and psychiatrists. But there's a few psychologists, perinatal psychologists that I'm looking into. And if any of them are decent, I'll get them on the podcast. (laughs) Like as a side note, like I have also been building out my multidisciplinary care team and I've been doing it much earlier than you, Siobhan. Like I went in at like five weeks pregnant to my GP and I was like, I need this. I need this. I need them planned now. Like I need to talk to my psychiatrist. I need to up my medication. I need to do 700 different things. Like, and I've like educated like my clinic on my autism. The plans are happening. So many things. It's just that the the people weren't available for appointments until now. That long. Yes. Well, I also think... having said that, I'm I'm being a bit picky, and I'm in Brisbane, which is much bigger. Yeah. Um, that's true. And therefore, less access. Um, but and plus, I'm my GP is my sure my GP, and but also you hate talk therapy. Yeah, I'm not picky because I Mind know you. that no one understands how to work with me anyways because I'm a woman with autism <laughs> who's having a child and no one is educated on that. Yeah. I am literally. Yeah. Here's the irony. I'm about to give a talk, run a project and then give a talk with a colleague at Griffith at the APS, so the Australian Psychological Society mm. on neurodivergence and trauma, like workshop in New Zealand. Mm. And the talk is titled how to make therapy better for autistic people. <laughs> like it's, mm. It doesn't exist. So you know what? Now I have to go and do the research and, to, and teach Maybe. the psychologists how to look after me. And it's just, you might be like, a, maybe there will be someone and you can do telehealth with them. Maybe, Maybe, but I've got one. That's ask, that was my story. Oh, you've got one that. Oh, got, perfect! You found I'm one that you like. I don't know. I've had one session with her, and by the sure, end sure, of it, like I, we'll find out. But at the end of it, she's like, "It sounds like you've got it all covered. Like, what do you need me for?" And I was like, oh. "Because I don't have it covered." And yes, I put on a great that. show. I'm very good at masking. Um, and I need mm. you to see past it, and I need you to tell me what to do and make me do mm. it, because I am already doing. 500 other things for everybody else like figuring out how to make therapy better for autistic people because there's no evidence mm-hmm. on it so can you at least look after me so that I can look after mm-hmm. everybody else it's chaos like I just no I relate to that so well and I think it's I mean it's obviously autism related but it's also very like just high functioning woman human. related <laughs> yeah human yeah. like I have exactly the same thing and I'm very grateful my GP mm. is my main port of call for all of my health, mental and, and or physical. Amazing. Um, and I've known her for like 20 years. Like she knew me when I was a child. So mm. she's like well on top of my family history. She's well on top of our 
um, highly anxious, pretending to manage, but not really managing um, <laughs> styles. Very good at calling me out mm. uh, when I need to be called out. So I'm very grateful for that. But mm. I am anxious that I will have a difficult time finding a psychologist who will be able to do the same thing. You know what? I'm just teaching, I'm teaching this person how to care for me. That is mm. rather than trying to find a person who already has that knowledge and capacity, mm-hmm. I am teaching the person how to care for me. So I'll be That's like, good idea. you need to look out for this. And like, I didn't figure this out about myself. My psychiatrist did because she's like a magician. She's also the one that diagnosed me as autistic <laughs> within the first five minutes of meeting me when no one else had said anything for most of my life. But I am now taking that information that I know and I am giving mm-hmm. it to the person that cares for me because I think that most psychologists are they want to learn they want to know how to care mm-hmm. for you best but sometimes you need to actually help them so my new mm-hmm. approach is rather than going I expect you to be perfect from the moment I walk in the door I'm like treating them as a person <laughs> being like let me tell you the things about me that are a little bit fucked um so that you know <laughs> how to avoid them um or deal with them yeah but yeah, anyways, yeah. That's, that's such a random well, aside maybe, for this chat. Not at all. It, no, it is connected because it ties back to our anxiety around sleep mm-hmm. and, yes. and safe sleep mm-hmm. and how safe sleep is a wonderful way to help reduce the risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked through all of that with Beck. But maybe if you really put in the hard yards with the psychologist, you'll do the work and then we can have them as a podcast guest. <laughs> <and then laughs> help us help maybe. parents who are highly stressed. For this. I mean, it's a very circuitous way if anyone who's listening has a better method such as they know someone who's already well on top of this please let us know there's got to be someone but anyways what I was going to ask because I've already had like plans in my head because hi I'm anxious like I'm going to have plans (laughs) in my head what are you going to do to deal with sleep problems that is safe going forward like what is your what is your safe sleep (laughs) um knowing that we are likely to have infants who have awful sleep plan yeah also healthy mental health (laughs) Totally. So I um, have been actively planning. The other day I was telling mm-hmm. Alex all my plans. He goes, oh, you and your bloody lists. And I'm like, I love lists. You know this about yeah. me. Get used to it. Um, but yes. So there's a few things. I um, have lots of contingency plans because I guess mm-hmm. the thing with babies is we don't know what we're going to be working with until we're working with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be embracing baby wearing a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I don't quite know why I didn't do it as much, um, with Timo. I think he just hated everything and seemed uncomfortable no matter what he was in. Yes. My daughter too. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, my plan, correct. My plan is to do that more, <clears throat> assuming this child will tolerate it. And if it doesn't, then we'll revisit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm also not going to try too hard to push the bassinet or to push like Mm. the separate sleep surface. Um, Mm. Even when, although we did end up co-sleeping with Timo, um, not all the time, but certainly we did. Mm. I was always trying to get him sleeping in a cot or a bassinet. Mm. Whereas I think that is, I'm happy to do that if the baby's happy to do that. But that's not going to be a goal of mine in any real way. Um, so I think that helps to take a lot of the pressure off. I, like you, had a lot of sleep um, insomnia because of anxiety. Um, I am on Friday going to be talking to my doctor around um, 
meds and sedatives. And obviously mm -hmm. if I'm taking those, then I'm not on duty. Mm -hmm. um, someone else is on sleep duty. Yeah. So having like carved out time that is I'm sleeping, that is my job here. I'm not um, on baby duty at all. And then mm -hmm. looking into, um, yeah, just being much more intentional. And I think, and we've talked about this in previous episodes that I'm already doing that. Like I go to sleep earlier. Whereas before with Timo, I was like, no, this is me time. Me time doesn't exist anymore. No. I'm going to have two children. It's gone. I can have me time in a few years. Yeah. Um, that's so not, yeah, I think just having. That's not self-care for you. That's not no, self-care. Exactly. Going to bed early is no. self-care. That Correct. is me time. Mm. Yeah. And I, that's obviously what I needed back. That the, I needed an element of that. Because even if mm. I tried to go to sleep early, I couldn't because of the anxiety. Um, mm. But True. going in with just really a completely different set of expectations mm -hmm. is the biggest component. Have you got any ideas for you? Um, there's things I will do again, like use the outlet. That was something mm -hmm. that was very, very, very helpful for me. I, that's the only way I slept because mm -hmm. otherwise, and I didn't use the outlet for naps, but I also thought that like naps had to be in a dark, cool room with white noise, like all the nine mm. yards. So my approach to sleep in general is different this time. The baby will nap where I am. So I don't have to worry about a monitor and watching it breathe and watching the mm. noises and like worried about the noises disturbing it. Um, I won't worry too much about resettling them. Like I will be much more go with the flow and intuitive. And I think that will help a lot. Um, mm. If this infant doesn't like sleeping on a separate sleep surface um we have a spare guest room we bought a mattress when we like set up the guest room and I was like I want it to be firm in case we have another child so that that can mm -hmm. be our safe sleep space um mm -hmm. so we can do things like that because I did sleep with Sienna pretty much full time from like four months mm. um <clears throat> I'm still not sure if I will breastfeed at all um mm. because of the hormonal challenges that I face um, with my brain um, that is something for therapy to figure out mm. um, but I will most certainly be supplementing with formula from the moment the baby comes out I will give it mm -hmm. a I will give it a dummy I will give it a bottle and if that affects my milk supply I don't care I will just switch mm -hmm. to formula because I cannot be that person again those are the things that really weighed on me was not being able to have help in the middle of the night because the baby mm. only drank my milk for three years <laughs> no she she eventually ate food at like 14 months before that it was just me so mm. those are things I will do so I will use an outlet to help me sleep not to keep the baby safe but to help me sleep I will mm -hmm. not buy a fancy monitor this time mm. one that you can actually see the child's chest rise and fall because then I will ruminate on it I will obsess so mm. I won't do that I will just use our standard crappy quality monitor that has video just to make sure there's no, nothing on its face um mm. if I sleep it separately from me during the day but other than that that's it like yep it will have an outlet that will be my peace of mind and this might all change and it might yeah. sleep great and not want to be touched touch um, all of the wood across all of the fingers well, I'm not expecting that. I'm expecting a child oh, no. that's really challenging to sleep. And if they're mm -hmm. not, that's fine. We will start with doing the best, safest pra sleep practices, but we will adjust and accommodate as needed. And that's totally. the safest thing for my mental health and for our infant, yeah. I think. Exactly. 
Yes. Anyways. Cool. We've got some plans. We'll report back when and as. Although <laughs> our recording plan um, for me being on maternity leave was that mm. Kristen would just take the ranks. But now um, Kristen's oh. having a baby. So we might have an unexpected hiatus and or we might have regular podcasts with screaming babies on our chests. Really, no one knows. Nobody knows we what do. we're going to do. We don't know what we're going to do. It's all going to be nope. a bit of a surprise. You know, we will end Exciting season Exciting for everyone. When Siobhan has a baby and mm -hmm. we will return for season three. Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> when we do. And then you'll know that we've returned. Yes, you will know when a new episode drops in your feed. But for now, you can still expect weekly episodes up until the birth of Siobhan's second child. And maybe yep. beyond that, it really just depends how I'm feeling. Um, yeah. I haven't posted on TikTok or Instagram much in the last four weeks, so yeah. we shall see. Is that stressful to you or do you find it liberating? Neither. I'm just so tired and so tired. sick. I can't do it. I open the app and I, I close register. it again. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, I can't do this right now. But anyways. Good. Well, good. I sh you should be focusing on rest and recovery. Something like that. But anyways, that is all for today's episode. Thank you for listening to our rambles. As always, I think this is like a two-hour episode, so I apologize. But anyways, yeah, we will catch you in the next one. Um, yeah. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.